I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. In the first half of the 1900s, producers in Barolo mostly bottled their wines from different vineyards altogether. In addition to levels of complexity that you get from the subtle differences in ripeness from the different microclimates, the blending of wines from sandstone and limestone marl together can yield a fuller, more complex wine. You'd also get other layers of complexity from the blending of younger and older vines. But then in the early 1960s, a push to bottle single vineyards ignited a new way of thinking about the region. And as the 20th century progressed, oak regimens changed and added still more possible layers of complexity. Now before the single vineyard movement, there was an idea of where the best sites were. Grapes from the so-called best sites commanded higher prices. But this information didn't always get to the consumer who was left to rely on the established reputations of the producer. Since the move towards single vineyard bottlings, a practice that not everyone participates in, it has become possible for consumers to taste through some different vineyards and to start to hone in on their personal favorite sites. As this slow process has taken place over the last few decades, important vineyard sites have been mapped in greater and greater detail and it's possible to put forth qualitative maps. As with anything qualitative, personal preference drives many of the maps out there. But still, as you check out the maps Barolo lovers have put together of their favorite sites, you can really get a much clearer picture of where the good stuff is coming from, more so than ever before. Maps put together by consumers of the wine, as opposed to local governing boards, can give you a pretty raw idea of what's going on. However, just as useful vineyard rankings appear and everything starts to fall into place, the entire system is agitated by global climate change. The great vineyards deliver in the cooler and even in the temperate years. But particularly in a hot year, a cooler vineyard site may outperform a classically great vineyard. This kind of climate influence has been evident since at least the 1990s, 
and it really makes having an understanding of vintage and sight vital to buying Barolo. In other regions like Bordeaux, you can hedge your bets with different grape varieties, and you can blend different varieties to deal with unique vintages. In Barolo, vineyard holdings with different microclimates could be the key to successful blending in unique vintages. All in all, though, the prevalence of single vineyard bottlings has unveiled a new Barolo, one of endless terroir-driven subtleties and seemingly endless pockets of land to get to know. And interestingly, as Barolo looks into the specifics of vineyards, at the same time, so many producers are also looking to the past to find answers in multi-vineyard blending. Perhaps the most meaningful appreciation of Barolo should rule out neither approach. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand alex sanchez of brovia in the Piemonte on the show today hello sir how are you uh, thank you for inviting me. I mean, it's a pleasure to be here. So you moved to the Piemonte in 2000. Yes. I moved to Piemonte because of love, let's say, because of health reasons. I met, uh, I am originally from Barcelona, and so I'm Catalan. And I lived, in, obviously, and uh, worked in Barcelona. And there was a point that uh, I met a girl that uh, she's currently my wife, Elena Brovia. And so we started our relationship at one point. Uh, we decided uh, to be closer because she lived. In Italy, I lived in Spain, so we were quite far away from from each other. It was easier moving me than moving the vineyards, I always say. So I, I moved to Italy to be closer to her. So what was the history of Brovia? I mean, how did it get started originally? Uh, the Brovia family started making wines in 1863, so already more than 150 years ago, originally in Sinio, which is a, a small town close to Serra Lunga d'Alba. So there were a couple of generations already making wines there, and then the father of my father-in-law died very, very young. He was in the, his early 30, and it was uh, 1932. And uh, my father-in-law was only six years old. So the activity stopped for a while. In fact, uh, my father-in-law, then uh, he grew up, he studied enology in Alba, and he made some kind of odd experience. And in 1953, he decided to make 
wines again. During that period, the, the mother of, of Jacinto, the mother of my father-in-law, stopped living in uh, Encinio, and then they bought in Castiglione Faleto in the 40s. So my father-in-law started physically the second chapter of, of the history of the winery in Castiglione Faleto. And actually, you're very much associated as a winery with Castiglione Faleto, although you have vineyard acres in other places as well. Everybody thinks about Brovia like a Castellone Faleto winery. We feel ourselves as well as uh, as a Castellone Faleto winery. We have the winery there, and uh, the first vineyard that the winery has had are in Castellone, in Castellone Faleto. The vineyard of Gabriel Sue was already part of that vineyard of the land the mother of my father-in-law bought in the 40s. My father-in-law bought Roque di Castellone in 1968. Then it was bought uh, Villero in 1991. And so the first vineyards that the, that the family has bought in the Barolo district has been in Castiglione Faleto. Then the family started buying vineyards in Serralunga d'Alba, but that has started in 1995. Currently, the size of the vineyards is almost 17 hectares, one seven, 17 hectares, from which around 12 are in Serralunga d'Alba. So... Most of the vineyards are in Serralunga d'Alba and around five factors in Castellone Faleto, divided in three different places, Roque di Castellone, Villero, and Garbrezue. So when you made that purchase in Serralunga in 1995 of Brea, that's a large parcel. That's a large parcel. So it was not done everything in the same moment. So in 1995, they bought the central part, the older part. They were able to buy it because they worked those vineyards on behalf of the owner. The owner was a, a person, a businessman that was living in Milan. So he was not producing any wine from Brea, but he needed someone working the vineyard because the vineyard has to be worked every year. So for different years, they worked the vineyard. They knew the vineyard very, very well, and they got paid with grapes. Instead of getting paid with money, they prefer to get paid with grapes. So they knew the vineyard very well. They knew the grapes and the quality of the production uh, very, very well. They already vinified and made some wines from Serralunga with those grapes. And so in 1995, the owner decided to sell. And so they had the chance to buy. That was the central part. And since then, they've been able to buy all the different parcels from the same vineyard. Until more or less mid of the year 2000, they have been able to complete the acquisition of all the parcels and so to have in this moment the monopoly. We are the only owners of the Brea Vineyard in Serra Luna Dalma. But at one time, your father-in-law just made Roque mm -hmm. from Roque de Castiglione. And how long was that period that Roque was the only crew that he was bottling? Roque de Castiglione, he bought in 1968. By the way, it's very, I think, special the way he bought it. First of all, he has always been in love with Roque. His first vintage, Jacinto's first vintage, was 1953. And that time, usually, winers, the few wineries that existed, usually they bought grapes from different uh, grape growers. Right? He was able to buy grapes from Roque. He vinified those grapes and he got in love with Roque. Roque has always been considered one of the very best positions and most historical positions in the Barolo district for the production of Barolo. In fact, in the old time, 
many years ago, usually, as, as, as I said, the few wineries existed, they bought grapes uh, to make the wines because most of the vineyards belong to the contadini, to the farmers. Uh, the price of the grapes usually were related to the sugar degree, so the capacity to produce alcohol, because in the people beliefs, the more alcoholic were the wines, the more important were the wines, and so the higher price they could get from the wines. And usually, grapes coming from those kind of vineyards were most expensive. Rocky was an exception. Rocky was an exception, was in the group of the most expensive grapes, not because of the sugar degree, because usually we get a little bit lower alcohol degrees compared to other positions, but because people wanted to have those kind of grapes to give some elegance to the wine. So Roque is very uh, well known to produce very feminine uh, Barolos, very complex Barolos with a huge richness of flavors. So my father-in-law was in love with, with Roque and since 1953 he has always in his mind tried to buy a parcel in Roque which has been very 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 difficult because of the importance of the vineyard and so because as well no one sold or was selling a, a parcel there. In 1968 a friend of my father-in-law that was a land broker uh, he came to visit my father-in-law and said, you know what, I have just talked to one person in Castellone Faleto. He's not sure, but he has told me in confidence because he has not told to anyone that he may be thinking about selling a parcel in Roque. And I have thought about you, Jacinto, because you have always been interested in Roque and you're in love with that vineyard. So uh, my father-in-law wanted to know what was the parcel. The thing is that since no one knew that... that maybe on sale, they could not go during the day, on uh, daytime. So they waited until uh, one night with the full moon. So during the night, they went to see the, uh, what was the parcel. So my father-in-law already could know what was the parcel, what was more or less the size, and uh, what was exactly the position, what was on sale, and if he could be interested or not. So that was one night. So in that, uh, in that way, nobody could have seen that they were just around looking because otherwise if people had uh, seen them people may realize that they were interested in, the, in, in that part and maybe it will be impossible to buy so the day after they met the, the owner in front of the of the vineyard they made the agreement they shake hands with because at that time with just shaking hands among uh, really uh, serious people the agreement was was closed and some people so then, but already was late for all the people, and so because my father was able to buy. And that Roque, since that moment, uh, I think it was 1970, that was the first vintage that my father-in-law made as, as a crew, as a single vineyard, Roque di Castellone. Then in the 80s, started with some vintages of Gabriel Sue, 1991, Villero, and then since 1995, Brea Viña Camilla. At that time it was called Camilla. Now it's called Brea Viña Camilla, but it's coming always from the Brea Viña in Luna. What's crazy about that story is that I know that your parcel of Roque is very steep. Like you could easily fall just even during the day. So that's amazing to me that they would go and survey it at night because it would seem scary as hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, 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 it was worth <laughs> going there. It, in fact, it's very steep. It's very steep uh, uh, vineyard. It's one of the, I think, steepest vineyards in the Parolo district. So steep that there are some rows 
where we cannot get uh, in with the tractor. So, because it can be very dangerous. So it's really, really steep. Uh, very nice position. Very nice and very steep position. A spectacular vineyard. There was a time when I climbed down most of the way to the bottom of that vineyard and someone had, not me, but someone had abandoned a shoe down there, like a tennis shoe was down there. And I, I thought like, basically someone scrambled out of here like tried to get out yeah. lost their shoe and was like no i'm not going back for the shoe leave the shoe i can't i can't make it and because it's a steep it's a steep vineyard it's yeah it can happen you really you really see if people are in shape or not because one thing is going down going down you have to pay attention but then after going down you have to to go up you're not in shape you arrive to the middle of the vineyard that you need to have a have a break and to breathe until having the energy to arrive to the top of the vineyard again. What would be the character of your portion of Roque? Because it's a long ridge and you are kind of off to one side of it, particularly the steeper side of it. Mm -hmm. What's the character of, of that parcel for you, that larger parcel for you? The position changes in some places from south to southeast. It's mainly southeast position. And one of the particularity of Roque is that the soil, compared to the soils we have, uh, compared, usually in Castellón Faleto, we have a higher percentage of sand compared to, for instance, to Bilero, which is very close. Uh, this, together with the fact that we have the southeast position, so sun in the morning, give us very elegant wines, very, very feminine wines. So huge complexity of flavors, usually flowers, small fruits, uh, some balsamic notes some salty uh, elements, then uh, a tannin that usually have a very silky, very velvety texture. That's, I think, the main characteristic of Roque. Very different, for instance, to Bilero. Is there a hydric stress? I mean, like, what's the water availability in Roque? Mm -hmm. This is one thing with the Roque, that the two combinations of the soil is very steepy, and then the, this lighter soil that makes the soil to dry very quickly. So Roque, it's a vineyard among our four vineyards, I think is, is the one that you have more variation from one vintage to another. So it's the one that maybe can suffer a little bit more in uh, warm, especially, but especially dry, dry seasons. And the one that uh, on the other way around, when you have uh, a very cooler uh, vintages, stands out with power that it's unusual for what you think about, uh, about the vineyard. So in a way, Roque really shows you what the year is. Yeah, that variability of among the different vintages you find very easily in the wine because in warmer, drier vintages, it accuses, it suffers a little bit more. And in fresher vintages, it gives, on the other way around, a much more powerful wine. And then Garble Sue is a parcel from Fiasco, right? Garble Sue, it's, it's close to the Fiasco vineyard. Garbalatsue, it's uh, the Mencione Geografica. The official name of, of the Mencione Geografica is Altenaso or Garbaletto Superiore or Garbaletsue because in a, we call in Italia uh, Frazione, so a part of the village of Castellone Faleto that is called Garbaletto. In Piemontese, it's, it's Garblet. In Garblet, in Garbaletto, uh, it's where we have the winery. And in the upper part of Garbaletto, there's an upper part where there's a hill. There's a hill with a vineyard. There's the Fias vineyard and there's the Garblet Sue as well. Uh, Sue comes from Superiore in the higher part, Su in Italian. So Sue in Piemontese. That's why the name of Garblet Sue. 
And then later you purchased Valero, so in, in the early 90s. Yes. And how did that purchase come about? The history of Valero is that before making Valero, the Brovias, the family, rented a small parcel in Mon Privato. So from 1985 to 1990, there was a Brovia Mon Privato. And in the end, uh, in 1991, the owner decided to sell. The thing is that the, obviously uh, Mauro Mascarello, uh, he had the rest of Mon Privato, and for him it became critical to buy that parcel. So he was obviously uh, able to pay any amount for buying that parcel because it, for him it was really critical. So the family decided not to compete on that acquisition because the price could have been too expensive for the size of the parcel. And so they decided not to buy it and Mauro Mascarello bought it and, and, and now he's, he has the monopoly of the vignette. And uh, in 1981, it was the opportunity to buy the parcels we have in Villero. If they had decided to buy Mon Privato, it could have not been able to buy Villero. So those both acquisitions could uh, were incompatible uh, financially. And so they were able to buy almost one and a half hectares in, in Villero in a wonderful, wonderful, uh, wonderful situation. And so that's why in 1991 was uh, they bought in Villero. It was the first vintage of Brovia Villero. So those are three Castiglione vineyards. How would you say that those three Castiglione vineyards differ or are the same? What do they share for being in the same commune and what is different about them? I think what they share is one of the characteristics of Castiglione Faleto that it's, you put in a balance on one side the aromatics and on the other side the mouth, the structure. The wines from Castiglione Faleto you have a, a quite uh, balance among these two elements. Compared, for instance, to Serralonga, where you have much more powerful wines, and uh, compared, for instance, with the wines uh, from La Morra, a part of uh, Verduno, uh, so Verduno, Novello, part of Barolo, where you have much more elegant wines, where, let's say, the aromatics wins in that, in, in that balance. So I think the three of them share that thing. What, anyway, in Castellano and Faleto as well, they are, like in the in the Barolo district, but I think uh, Castillo Faleto is especially important for that. E every vineyard has different characteristics, and there are some micro, small micro areas with different soil compositions, and that's very important, I think, in Castillo Faleto, and I think that's shown into the wines. In fact, one of the things we try to express with the wines is we try to produce very pure wines that really reflect the identity of the varieties and the terroir, so and every single uh, position. For us, we think that one way of trying to show that purity is making the same kind of approach in the winery. For us, that's very important because once the grapes arrive to the winery, they are like twin brothers. They follow parallel life. So they have the same kind of vinification, they have the same kind of aging, they go into the bottle in the same period. So in that way, the differences among the wines are just due to the terroir, just due to the origin. I think that a different winemaking approach means that in the end, the result is just not done to the terroir, is as well, there's the margin, there's the variation because 
of the different operations you have made in the winery. So we work in a way where if you make a testing within the same vintage among the different single vineyards, you experience what it is Roque, what it is Villero, what it is Garbet, and what it is uh, Brea, Viña, Camilla, since the wines, the wines are made in exactly the same way in, in the winery. So what I usually, obviously, every vintage is different, but as uh, and very, very roughly, very generally, I, I see Roque as a very elegant, very feminine uh, Barolo. It's usually uh, the crew you pour first. Yeah, in fact, usually in the order, I usually it's from the most elegant Barolo, which is Roque, to the most powerful Barolo, which is Brea Viña Camilla from Serra Lunga. So in Roque, we have that elegance, that finesse, that uh, wonderful many hints of flavors that are appearing constantly. And, and that uh, for some people, Roque, mm, uh, some people may think that is the more simple Barolo because maybe it's let's say, the most elegant one. Uh, but I think it's one of the mo- most complex ones because there are many things in the air. It's not a Barolo that comes through you. It's a Barolo that you need to study, you need to pay attention, you need to discover. Uh, it's very different to other Barolos that really are more exuberant somehow. Roque is, is, is someone that you really have to concentrate and, and discover. And if you have the patience and uh, if you are in the mood and as well, it, if the wine, if the bottle is in that mood, I think it's really fantastic, fantastic uh, wine. Villero, Villero, I find usually more classic, more austere. They are very close. They are on the same hill, just 200 meters at distance. So same hill, uh, rock is southeast position. Villero is southwest. Villero uh, is sun in the afternoon, which is warmer. And uh, uh, the soil is more compact, more typical to, for being in Castiglione, especially clay. And uh, so we have a little bit more austere Barolo. And one of the characteristics of Villero, and uh, many people think that it's a Barolo that really reflects what Barolo is as a wine. So Barolo, it's a wine with many different faces, with many different uh, personalities, depending on the producer, depending on the vintage, depending on the terroir, which is a, it's critical for the uh, Barolo. But if you have the definition of Barolo, as a wine and you taste Videro, uh, usually most of the elements of the definition of Barolo, you find them in a glass of Videro. It, for me, it's a little bit shy. It's a little bit, uh, it's not very extroverted, uh, like the Roque isn't it either. It reminds me sometimes, uh, some Videros, the personality of the Langa or the character of the Langa, because it's a little bit close, a little bit shy. Uh, but in the same way, it's quite firm, quite strong. And somehow, mentally, ideally, reminds me some foggy days in the fall in Langa. And so I associated uh, a lot Villero with Barolo and, and, and with, with the Langa. Villero is much bigger than Roque. In fact, Roque is quite narrow and long, but the total hectares, I think it's around 8 to 10 hectares. Villero easily is more than twice Roque. So inside Villero, you find some positions that are facing as well, not all plain southwest. So ours are, I would say, all is more or less southwest positions. And the fact that it's a little bit bigger in total size is probably the reason why I feel like I encounter Valero on more labels than Roque. Yeah, for sure. Uh, more families, more wineries have uh, parcels in Valero compared to Roque. 
And what about Garble Sue? How does it compare to those other two vineyards? Uh, Garble Sue is lower, quite narrow and quite long. There are some parts where we have a little bit more clay, like in Vilero, and then other parts with a little bit more limestone, which is something that we find in Serra Lunga d'Alba. It's a vineyard that is a, a similar position to Vilero, lower position, and where we find a little bit, some parts a little bit more compact, uh, soils, more, uh, more limestone. So we usually find a little bit fruitier wines, a little bit more mineral, which is something that then we find more clearly in Serrunga d'Alba and with a, a bigger tanning compared to Roque and to Vilero. That's why we follow, in the case of Castellone Faleto, usually that order, from more elegant, in the case of Roque, to a little bit more powerful and fruitier, in the case of Garbletsue. And you mentioned that Serralunga can show more minerals, and I think in your case that really comes through for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I try Brea, one of the things that really draws me to it is the texture, the deep concentration that it has, but at the same time, this kind of flecked mineral character mm-hmm. that's very apparent, yeah. even from youth. Uh-huh. Yeah, Serralunga is wonderful. It's a wonderful village. Uh, geologically speaking, is the formation of the soils in Serralunga are the older ones. And so we have uh, very compact soils. In Serralunga, we have uh, more limestone uh, compared to Castiglione Faleto. And you, we usually, we see not only with the Nebbiolo grapes, we produce as well Dolcetto, we produce Barbera. With all the grapes, we, usually we see the wines from Serralunga. We have darker color and we have deeper fruit and we have bigger structure. That means in the case of the Barolo, a little bit higher acidity and more tannic structure. In the case of the aromatics, usually, yeah, in Serralunga, we have that a little Fruitier, you have more meat, it's meatier, and you have that minerality. That is, I think, it's common line in, in our Serra Lunga wines. The eastern side of Serra Lunga, that they are, like where Brea is, is a little bit different in characteristics to the, to the western side. So how would you kind of define that eastern side? It's associated maybe with the soil. I cannot tell you exactly because we don't have uh, vineyards on the western side, but as well on uh, the, the freshness of the position. So south, southeast, is like in the case of Roque. That gives some kind of cereal, uh, maybe flavors that uh, I think you find in, 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 in the Brea Viña Camilla. Parcel to parcel. Are uh-huh. there differences that are true year in and year out, even though the protocol that you're using is the same for all of them? Uh-huh. Yeah, we handle the same, not in the vineyard. In the vineyard, obviously, we handle it in a, in a different way. And I think that's very important because that's why uh, when you really have to know your terroir, you really have to know your positions. And so every position requires to be handled in a different way. It's like every person. Every person has to be handled in a different way. Uh, the positions are different. The terroirs are different. Once they arrive to the winery, they are behaving in the, in the same way. I, I don't see generally constant differences among them. So every vintage is different. And it, it depends more on the vintage and uh, than on the, on, the, on the vineyard. So... Usually they follow the same path, but the vinifications are not sometimes the same. Sometimes for one wine, it, they started easier, in an easier way. Sometimes they go faster for some wine. Sometimes the temperatures go tend to be a little uh, upper for some wine. Uh, but it's not that it's a question of the terroir. It's not a question that Brea 
goes usually in that way compared to the others. So what is the protocol at Brovia if you're doing cruise? We uh, ferment the vinifications of the cruise are made in cement tanks. We had uh, round cement tanks uh, that are 100 hectoliters, so 10,000 liters, and we have four of them. So every single vineyard, every crew is vinified separately. We have one tank for each of them. The fermentations are spontaneous, so with the indigenous yeast. Eh? And the uh, vinification usually lasts for around three weeks. That's on average. We can go up to four weeks. Uh, for instance, in the 2013 vintage, we were in, in four weeks. But on average, we are in, in three weeks. We control the temperature in, in the meaning that we check the temperature. But with the cement, one of the characteristics is that the temperature usually during the fermentation is in the range we consider optimal for the kind of wines uh, for our experience that we try to make, which is in Celsius between 25, 26, and 29. We have a system that allows us to cool the wines if it's needed, but I have to say that with cement, very rarely we have to use it. We do and the delestage during the peak of the fermentation. The vinification we conduct to produce the wines that are very pure. As well, we try to give two elements, to give in the wines two elements that we as, as well as wine lovers, we enjoy in the wines that are the complexity, very important, I think, for the Barolo. And the elegance for us, the finesse as well is very important. So the the vinification, the maceration is conducted in a way where basically we bath the cup, not in a very aggressive way. So we just bath the cup, and by microcapillarity we have a very complete extraction. We make different remontage, pumping overs during the day. How many and how long they are? Every remontage depending obviously on every tank and depend on the moment of the fermentation. So we can go from uh, three remontage a day up to nine, ten remontage a day, shorter ones in, in, in the peak moment of the fermentation. In that way, we think that we are able to have a very complete extraction from the skins, very complete. When we finish the vinification, we see that the extraction has been and the skins are really, we have got a, a very, very complete extraction. That means complexity, but done in a very short way. So we thought of charging of tannins as well the wine. So that means keeping the elegance in the wines. Then after that, when the vinification is finished, we rack the wines. Uh, we make them malolactic, and then the wines are racked into barrels, around 48 liters, around 4,000 liter barrels for the aging. We don't filter the wines. One of the characteristics of our wines is that we use only free-run wine. So we obviously we press the skins, but that wine is not put in bottle. With that, we as well preserve the elegance of the wines. Do you like to keep some leaves in with the Barolo, or do you tend to remove them? We do. In fact, after the Manolactic, we still do. We don't have a formal period. We don't have basic receipts. We adapt the lengths. Uh, we adapt for how long, depending on the evolution of the wine. So I cannot tell you exactly if it's sometimes it's three months, if it's six months, if it's one year, because we rack when we think it is needed. We rack the minimum, the possible, but when we think there's a moment to rack and to take out from the leads and, and to leave it cleaner in that moment, we, we, we do that. 
By the way, the age of the vines for the crews are, are, are all from around 45 up to 60 years old vines. I think it changed uh, a lot the way we work in the vineyard. That has changed a lot during the last years. We have changed some things in the winery, but following the same philosophy. So it has not been anything really important, revolutionary. We have always kept the kind of style we have in this moment. So that uh, search of the real identity of the terroir uh, has been always there. We have made some small tuning improvements where in some parts of the process of the vinification of the bottling where we thought that there was margin to have a higher quality to improve some step. But uh, I think what changed, the, obviously the vintages have changed, the, the season, the weather conditions have, have changed, and as well the way understanding how to work in the vineyard has changed as well. So what would be a good example of that change in mm. the vineyard? In the vineyard, uh, now we work organic, uh, organically. We are uh, certified organic uh, farmers. And uh, it has changed in the last years, the pruning. So the kind of pruning we made, uh, it tends to take care more of the vine and it means less stress to the vine. It has changed a lot uh, as well, the care of the soil. In the 70s and the 80s, especially in the 70s, people fed a lot the soil. Now the vegetation, the leaves, we take care in a different way. We know how we have improved, it's all, there's always a margin to improve, but we have uh, there's a better understanding of how to manage the leaves, of how to manage the vegetation. There's the green harvest as well, that before, it, almost uh, until the 80s, it, it did not exist. So sometimes, many decades ago, the good vintage, it was made by the nature. So it was the nature that decided that because of a hail, because of uh, certain uh, weather conditions, they made by nature the green harvest and they reduced in some cooler vintages. The, the yield was reduced, for instance, in 1996. And so in the end, the maturation was very nice with a lower production. Now, in this moment, we do uh, already since the 80s, it, it, the green harvest, uh, many people uh, produce a green harvest. Our philosophy with green harvest is the one of not reducing too much the quantity, but to arrive to the right kind of quantity to be able to produce the kind of wines that we need to produce. And if that quantity is achieved naturally with the combination of the soil care, with the pruning, with the leaves, we think it's better. And on the, in the same time, on warmer vintages, now what we try to produce usually is have a higher yield because on warmer vintages, one of, of the dangers is to have too much overmaturation of the grapes, too much sugar, too low acid. In that case, the higher yields, the more grapes you have, so the less concentration you have in the grapes. And as well, the more protection you do with the leaves, that's uh, the, as well, the less the leaves suffer. 
for instance, in Bilero, we talked before about Bilero, the position of Bilero, which is southwest, which is very warm position. We try to take care of, of that because in Bilero, it's quite warm. As well, the air circulation is minimal. If you compare, for instance, to Seralunga, this is part of the terroir as well element. So the micro position in Seralunga d'Alba, we are in a kind of valley that in summertime, usually around two, three in the afternoon, there's a, a kind of air circulation that refreshes the vineyard, that as well helps for the health of the vine. In Vilero, it's quite steady. Usually there's no movement of, in fact, it's very, very hard to work in Vilero in the, in the first afternoon because really it's, it, it's hard. It's a, it, you, you suffer working there. So in Vilero, besides kind of management of the leaves, it is very important as well to try to leave some herbs in the vineyard to keep as well more freshness in the soil. So that's very important. And so as well, on the other way around, in fresher vintages, I think it's more important to do a little bit more of in harvest. In fresher vintages, the other way around, it's more difficult to get the right maturation. And so if you have uh, lower yields, you are helping to get that, that kind of maturation. These kind of things that are very important has changed a lot during the last years. And what about Flavicenza Dorada? Is that a factor in some of the vineyards and not others? Uh-huh. Florescenza dorata is an illness that it's very kind of scary. It's very important in the area. Usually it's affected in the positions that are close to the forest because it's transmitted easily and it affects more some varieties than others. Specifically, Dolceto and Barbera, for instance, are more exposed, subjected, risky to Florescenza than uh, other varieties like Nebbiolo and Moscato. In fact, in Sierra Lunga d'Alba, we have a very big vineyard. We have Brea, and besides Brea, we have around four more hectares of another vineyard, which is close to Brea, which is called Gianetto. And we are in contact, in the lower part of the vineyard, we are in contact with, with the forest. One of the things we have made uh, to try to protect us from Fravicenza Dorata is in a little bit riskier parts, we have planted Moscato. Because uh, it's a natural uh, barrier. It's a natural barrier. It, it adds uh, like a natural barrier. In Serralunga d'Alba as well, we have a kind of benefit for Moscato because it's the only town, the only village in the Barolo district that is inside the Moscato dusty denomination. So uh, we can produce Moscato dusty and uh, in the fact we are going to produce Moscato dusty in, in the future. Uh, to avoid the risk of flavescenza has created, in our case, a new wine to come, which is Moscato d'Asti. It's unusual to me to think of a time where a wine has been made because of a pest threat. We have studied the, the soil, we have studied the position. We are worried about flavescenza yes. because we know, and in fact, uh, that we constantly had vines dying. And so what could be th- this no efficient other solution. So we thought, okay, let's do a barrier. Let's do Moscato. Uh, Moscato is still a typical grape from the area. We are in the, the DOCG denomination. So, and it's as well a wine that can complement our, our portfolio. Yeah, sure, so, certainly, uh, certainly. But I just, uh, uh, the last time that happened was like phylloxera. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Where like an insect yeah, yeah. created new kinds of wines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, uh, to me it's interesting. Yeah, because <laughs> like, yeah. it's recent. Yeah, yeah, it is very recent, and it looks at uh, changed many things, changed the industry, changed the sector. Uh, 
many things changed since they are to protect from phylloxera, obviously. Uh, let's hope that Flavicenza won't be like phylloxera, but obviously it's a real risk, and it's a risk in the Barolo district. Is a, a risk still up to now? Let's cross fingers quite concentrated. In all the areas, uh, it it's, can be devastating. So you do make uh, some other grape varieties, and you mentioned how you have Freysia in Valero. Mm -hmm. And it's a small amount, but, I mean, what's it like to get Freysia from Valero? I, in particular, I think that's a very good Freysia, mm -hmm. in my experience. Are there qualities that you see in the Nebbiolo from Valero that you also see in the Freysia from Valero? Mm -hmm. Are there similarities there? Yeah, I think there are really similarities among the varieties. So the Freysia and the Nebbiolo are similar varieties. Freysia... Usually, compared to Nebbiolo, the aromatics are fruitier. And so, usually, Fresa is made to drink and to enjoy in a little bit earlier stage. So, in order to enjoy those fruity flavors. More or less, the steps during the growing season in the vineyard, usually Fresa it's in between the Nebbiolo and the Barbera, more or less. In the winery, the way we produce Fraser, we produce a very tiny amount of Fraser, as, as you said. We produce around 900 bottles only of Fraser. And it's, it's made in, uh, with vinification in stainless steel around one week to 10 days of vinification. Uh, we think that if you go over that, you risk to have a too tannic uh, wine. So not good for uh, to enjoying in an earlier stage. And then it's aging in stainless steel. You know, Fresa, you can produce a little bit uh, kind or dry, a little bit uh, sparking or steel. In our case, we produce dry and steel. And it's a wine that gives us many satisfaction. It's usually, historically, the market has been very local. Usually it was Piemont, it was Liguria, some parts of Lombardia, but very, very, very local. During the last years, the knowledge of Fresa has become uh, a little bit wider, and especially I think uh, for really Piemont lovers, really Piemont lovers, it's a wine that starts to be known and, and to be appreciated. So was it always dry and still the whole time it's been made? No, uh, my father-in-law, the first Fresas he made, he tried to produce a, a little bit sparkling. The thing is, is that uh, we have not the technology to do it technically and uh, in, in a kind of precise, constant way. So he tried to have that sparking effect in a natural way. So with a re-fermentation in the bottle. The thing is, it was not always possible. So, and usually it was more under control when the market was local than when, the, when we had to ship the wines. Uh, so... Sometimes everything could happen. Uh, it was a, the, uh, a natural sparking wine, so producing in a, in a natural way. Uh, and so it was not under control. So uh, at, uh, in order to avoid problems for such a teeny quantity, we decided to do steel and, and dry like we do in this moment. And so it's vinified in steel, whereas the crews are vinified in cement, the crews of Nebbiolo. Do you see uh, an aging curve difference? Is it more approachable in youth? Does it age longer or less long than the Nebbiolo? Usually, since the vinifications are different, we cannot compare directly. They are different wines. What we can do is compare the vinification of Nebbiolo because the crews, in our case, in our wines, the barrel crews are vinifying in concrete tanks. But we have 
all the parcels, uh, with all the wines for Nebbiolo that we vinify in wood and stainless steel. So we see the differences with the Nebbiolo grape fermenting and uh, during the vinification in the three different uh, in the three different materials. And uh, obviously, the origin of the grapes are different in every tongue and every barrel. But the more constant and the more fluent is the process is in the concrete tank. So that's why we give priority to concrete for the cruise. We think that there is a constancy, that the temperature is homogeneous. It's kept naturally that right branch. After the fermentation, we go on with the maceration. And so with cement being an isolating material, is kept on that temperature for longer, for many days. So we are able still to have a nice extraction with those temperatures. This with wood and with stainless steel is not the case. So you have to work more with the temperature control and changing the temperature sometimes. And so that means that the process is not the same. It's not as fluent. And obviously, if you have to change the temperatures, you are introducing external aspects to the wine, uh, your internal flows inside the barrels. And the more natural we think is the process, the better it is. And this, I think, is better achieved in our experience, in our experience with our wines with, uh, with concrete tanks. So the preference is really for concrete? The yeah. preference, yes. Our four most important wines are the four Barolo Cruz. We have four concrete tanks uh, to them. And are they lined tanks? It's concrete. The thing is that after many years, we have some tartrates inside, but it's a, it's only concrete. You also do, as you mentioned, make a couple of dolcetto, and one of them is like one of my very favorite dolcetto, which is the Salatio, which you don't make every year, mm-hmm. but is unique, I think, special wine that I like. And how did that get going, and what is that wine? Solatillo, it's a wine we produce from Serra Lunga d'Alba, from the Brea Vineyard. So it's produced in the, the same position for where produced the Brea Vigna Camilla. It's a, an old Dolcetto vineyard. It's more than 45 years old uh, a vineyard that is just aside the parcel we use for the Brea Vigna Camilla. So it's in what we call a wonderful Barolo position. So it's in a position where currently nowadays there's kind of nonsense in having Dolcetto because it's a position for producing a, a great Barolo. Uh, economically, it has no sense, but you know, we, we do we, this work as well for passion. The passion is, is I think, it's very important in our work. Uh, uh, and so it's kind of flagship, has become a, a kind of flagship for our winery. And we are very proud of this wine. So we still have that vineyard there. So in 30 years, more than 30 years, it's a wine that we have made only 11 times. First time was in 1985. That was when Solatio was born. What it is special of Solatio is obviously technically it's a dolcetto, it's a dolcetto d'alba, but for us it's quite a unique wine. It's a very, very important wine. It's a wine that has characteristics, uh, I think, different to a typical traditional dolcetto, like, for instance, the, the case of the Viña Vile, which is our, let's say, everyday drinking, that our traditional dolcetto. Solatio, by the way, was born by by casualty. Let's say, like maybe we were talking before about Moscato. Sometimes the, the things are born in a way that are not programmed. The, it, in the case of Solatio, uh, what happened is it was 1985, and it arrived the period of the harvest period, and uh, in the winery, the tanks 
for the vinification were not ready. So there were some some wine in within some of the tanks that were needed for the vinification. So obviously at that time you have three possibilities. One is harvesting, uh, but what can you do if you harvest only? Putting in a, so when you harvest or you keep the grapes, but uh, someone else, but uh, someone else, it was not the case. Or you sell the grapes. Or the third possibility is you wait. Uh, fortunately, it was a wonderful position. It was uh, fortunately as well the weather was fantastic, and so they kept the grapes still obviously in the vines for around a couple of weeks around until they were able to do the movements they needed in order to have a tank available for that wine. That moment, uh, they harvested and they were they had wonderful grapes, but they were really, really totally different. Much, uh, the maturation was much forward, much more advanced compared to the to the normal thing for a dolcetto. Uh, the grapes were very healthy, very, very healthy. In fact, the position was fantastic and they were, they were lucky because the weather was very nice during those days. So they vinified the wine. My father-in-law has always told me that uh, the, at one point, the alcohol degree superated 15 degrees and there was a still a kind of sugar, uh, reducing sugar in it. And he stopped the, the, the fermentation because otherwise he could have arrived to a little bit more than that. Then he aged the, uh, the wine and they had a kind of, my father in law said, a monster. They, they, they were a super wine, a super dolcetto. That moment, usually the dolcettos, it was the mid of the 80s, they were much more easy drinking. The alcohol degree was lower and there was no important dolcetto at that, that time for my, what my father in law has always told me. So they didn't know what was going to be the reaction of the public because it was something really, it was kind of wine that didn't exist. So what they, they made in, in, in some uh, wine shows that they, they attended, they brought some samples of this wine to see the reaction of the public. He told me that it was a wine show in Turin and uh, there was uh, Giacomo Bologna from Braida. He made the first important Barbera with Brico de Lucilone. He was a friend of my father-in-law, Jacinto. He tasted the wine. He was so in love and excited about the wine that everyone he knew, he knew many people, he told, go to Broglie because you have to try really something fantastic. Uh, besides the table of my father-in-law, there was a big winery. That big winery was, uh, uh, I didn't know what happened because it, my father-in-law was a, a, had a queue of people waiting for, uh, wanting to, to try that wine. And uh, that was for such a small winery was something. And so people were really excited about that. Uh, I started to make orders of the wine. The thing is that it was still in the tank. So my father-in-law said, this is something new. I, I don't have experience on it. Now it's like that. Now it's it's fantastic. But you know, you you can never know what what can happen with the wine. So they took the orders, but telling the people, okay, this I can I can make if everything goes like that. But I cannot commit to have the wine because uh, the wine. Let's hope it it goes okay. But I'm not sure if it will be. Fortunately, luckily, he was able to bottle the wine, and the wine was fantastic. And that's. When the, the how the Solati was born, and since then, since 1985 up to uh, up to now, only 11 vintage we've been able to make it. Those are warmer years, or not necessarily warmer. Not necessarily warmer. There are some some vintages that that yes, some vintages. For instance, we have the, some uh, 2004 that was not a a warm vintage. 
the thing is that we need to have dolce is a difficult difficult variety in the vineyard difficult variety in the winery and in the vineyard the thing is that you have to achieve great maturation in the in, in the vineyard for the kind of wine uh, how we make the uh, solatio we usually pick up the grapes a little bit late around one week 10 days later compared to what would be the normal decision for a dolcetto. We can do that in that vineyard, in the Brea vineyard, because of the soils. Because of the soils, because it, it's an old vineyard, it's a wonderful position, and the soils in Seralunga give us wines with higher acids. The risk with the dolcetto, dolcetto is a wine with lower acids, uh, is if you go over that, you risk to reduce the acids. But in Seralunga, because of the of the soils, we are keeping very nice freshness, we are keeping very nice acids. And so, if the maturation is perfect, we can do that some days, for some days, keeping a nice freshness on the wine, which is very important for the wines and, uh, and in concrete for, for the solatio. But the maturation usually in the dolcetto is achieved around mid, obviously depending on the vintage, and let's say on average around mid-September. The thing is the dolcetto, it, it's uh, affected a lot by the cool temperatures. So in mid-September, if you have some days with cool nights, the berries start to fall, and so you have to pick up the grapes. And so you need to have Obviously, the perfect season, you have to have the perfect maturation. And in that period, you have to have those days, those extra days that really help you. And so that you can achieve that kind of maturation and allowing some, some days the, the grapes in the, in the vines. And this is not something easy. You mentioned freshness. And one of the things that I like about Brovia is that the wines do often have fruit and do have character, but they do have freshness as well. It's something I... I enjoy about them. One of the things I've noticed is that sometimes it seems like the Brovia wines are bottled a little sooner, not a lot sooner, but a little sooner than some of your contemporaries in the region. Is that a conscious choice or is that just a coincidence? And does it vary to the year of the conditions of the harvest? It's not a coincidence. We usually, uh, during the last years, on average, let's say that we, uh, the, the wines have been aged more or less three years if we talk about the cruise in, in barrel. And we try the wines to be in bottle one year before their release. This can change a little bit from vintage to vintage, but it, there are not big changes about that. Can be some changes maybe in how long it's in the bottles, and then maybe we can rack to stainless steel for some month, or maybe we can anticipate the bottling a little bit. But the differences among the vintages is more related to what time in oak, which is close to three years, and what time in stainless steel. In warmer vintages, maybe we don't age them for three years in oak. Maybe it's a little bit shorter, and then a period in stainless steel before they are put in bottle. The thing of the freshness, I think it has a lot to do of how we work in the vineyard and the kind of maturation we try to get from from the vineyards so that that's where the freshness the the acids we have in the vineyard are, are taken from you also source a couple of wines from the roero you source a nebbiolo bottling and then an arnais from roero sources and what's it like dealing with roero fruit i mean you have nebbiolo from lange and you have nebbiolo from roero and how are they different in roero the soils are lighter. We have a higher percentage of sand. 
So what we do, we, we don't try to force the wines. I think one of the things we try to do to produce the kind of wines we, we produce uh, in order to have a very pure expression is not forcing the wines, not, not trying to make of them something that they are not naturally. So we have already the Barolos as the long-aging wines, as, as the full-bodied wines. In the case of the Nebbiolo, uh, naturally the soils are lighter, the, you have this higher percentage of sand, so you have a more feminine expression of the grape. So it, usually you have more small fruits, more uh, violets, roses, that expression, and it's an expression we, we enjoy in, in, in the Nebbiolo you produce. Then, uh, in the case of the Nebbiolo, the vinification is made in stainless steel for around 10 days, and then it's aged in stainless steel. There is no oak, so in order as well to keep that very pure, pure fruit, that uh, very pure uh, identity of, of the grape. You see the grapes physically, to see this is coming from Ceralunga, and uh, this is coming uh, for Bilero, or this is coming uh, from the grapes from the Ruero. There's a difference already in the color, already in the shape of the berries. And then it is very evident as well in, in the wine. So that's the nature of uh, uh, The soils are, I think, much more different between, obviously, the Parolo district and the Ruero that are between different vineyards in the Parolo district. Have there been real memorable vintages for you? I have to say that not necessarily I prefer the vintages that people consider the most important one. So I can enjoy uh, some vintages like 2008, for instance, that that's, uh, I think I, I think it's a extraordinary vintage uh, where you have a wonderful expression of the terroir. Uh, 2004, for instance, for sure is fantastic, but this is known. 2001 has been fantastic as well. All the vintages, for instance, uh, these are vintages that in our case, I really like 2005. It's, I think it's very complex. It's, you have uh, wines that are very deep, very deep wines, and uh, with kind of nerve of energy that I like in the Barolos. Uh, every vintage has to show something that you don't, you don't have in, in other wines. And as well, during the age, that uh, like happens during the, the life of the wine. So there's every step of the evolution. You lose something, but you find something new. So what about the market side of Brovia? Where is the fan base for Brovia? And have you seen it grow over the time you've been there? I feel like, at least in the United States, the fame of Brovia has really increased over mm. the same period that you have, have happened to have been there. I will say that there are two different approaches of, of making, well, there are many different, but basically one can produce the wine that the people is requested, following more or less the trends or the fashions. Our approach is producing the wine in which we believe, and then we think that the world is big enough to look for the people that really likes, enjoy, and share that passion and that vision for the wines. And so that's our case, and that's a, that's a, that means a lot of satisfaction when you employ that passion for that world when you end with, with that product. And then you see that there are people in many, different peoples in many, many different countries that really like, enjoy, and are satisfied. Uh, and uh, in the end, we work with emotions. And uh, when you enter in the life of someone in a moment in which you share that product and, and, and he recognizes that and he enjoys that, that, that's a satisfaction for us. So you've told us how you make the crew Barolo, but how do you drink them? I mean, in what age do you start to approach them? The thing is that there are some vintages, like 2011, for instance, that they are already 
born in a very graceful way. I think 2011, it's a perfect example of a vintage that has been worn with wonderful aromatics, already very precise, very clean, already very nice expression of the terroirs, and in the same time with a finesse, with a balance, and that is very rare for a Barolo in such a, in such a young stage. So I think 2011, it's a vintage that you can decide if keeping or start to enjoying. I, I, the thing is that Every step of the, uh, as I was saying, every step of the aging of a wine shows you something. And there are other vintages, for instance, like 2010, uh, that has, has been a very, very important vintage. The, at least our wines in this moment, I think that are still very close. It's a wine that, it's a, uh, are wines that have wonderful potential, but in this time, I think it's, it's a pity to open them. I, I think uh, it's better to enjoy in this moment a 2011 vintage. So it's a vintage that maybe you can wait at least three, four years to open a bottle. Then obviously everyone has his own preferences. There are some people that prefer the Barolos in an early stage. There are some people that prefer the Barolos in a little bit mid-age stage or in the peak, uh, in the peak moment on the evolution. So, Depends a lot on the vintage, the characteristics on the vintage, and depends a lot on what kind of stage you prefer in the in the wines. Me, I personally prefer, like I think the the wines to enjoy them in different stages because uh, obviously the same vintage you see these differences among the life of the of of the wine and how it shows you and uh, makes you enjoy different things of the wine. It's a good thing you married into the family then. Because otherwise, that could get difficult to try it that often. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, in fact, I cannot complain. So what's what's yet to come? You know, 13, 14, 15. What have you already seen that we haven't seen in the bottle yet for Barolo? For us, we are very, very glad about the 12s. I consider them uh, a vintage on the elegant side. So somehow similar to the 11s, I think wonderful aromatics. Compared to the 11s, I find in the, in the, in the 12s uh, a little bit richer wines, a little bit bigger fruit, uh, and somehow bigger structure. Then after 12s, 13s, 13s. For me, it's difficult to talk about the, about the, the vintages that, uh, that are coming because obviously wine is something alive. So I can tell you what we are seeing right now. Then let's cross fingers and let's hope that everything goes okay like my father said with the Solatio uh, in 1985 but 13 for what I'm seeing now it's a vintage that I personally love I really personally love I, I think uh, again for what I'm saying now I'm seeing now in the, in, the, in the winery are very rich wines very complete wines wonderful aromatics and a lot of depth and power in the same time I'm seeing in this moment the 13 similar to the 10s, but uh, a little bit rounder, a little bit more open, a little bit more expressive, uh, and with better aromatics. But again, this is what I, I'm seeing in, in this moment. Let's hope uh, <laughs> we are going to we are planning to put them in bottle uh, in July or September this year, so beginning uh, summer or uh, the, uh, or before the harvest. So let, let's hope everything goes okay until then and uh, when they are in bottle. Then 14th, 14 has been a very very difficult, very challenging vintage. The season has been rainy, it has been cool, but uh, September October. 
went very well. So I remember in summertime, all the winemakers, we were very worried about the weather. But then uh, fortunately, the season changed. So the Nebbiolos had the chance to achieve a very nice maturation. It's a vintage, I think, 14 that will surprise many people because as, as well, like it happened to us until harvesting and until the grapes arrived to the winery, we didn't believe that much in what could come from the 14s. But I think that looking at what we have in the winery, we will be able to produce very surprisingly, very, very nice wines if you consider what was the, the, the season. And then, uh, so I think uh, on the fresh side, but I think it will be very, very classic, very interesting, very interesting and, and nice wines from 14. Then 15, 15 has been uh, the last vintage of that we have in the winery. 15 uh, has been a very, very nice season. Summer has been, uh, some part of the summer, quite warm, but there was water reserve, so there was no stress for the vines. Then more or less mid-August, Temperatures uh, went to normal again, so I think for all the varieties we have we've been able to have very nice maturations. Production as well, in terms of yields, has been very nice, and so it. I think it's a very promising. Uh, it promised to be very nice vintage. Still, soon to say in the case of the Nebbiolos because they are still taking shape, but I think uh, will be as well a vintage on the elegant side. So I guess in many ways, you kind of live the dream that a lot of people think that they would like to do, which is I'm going to give up this life in finance and business, and I'm going to go and move to a winemaking region and work with a famous winery that's doing incredible work and from some of the great vineyards of the world. So if you were to tell someone about that and say, like, you know, what you might not realize is this kind of surprise, either pleasant or unpleasant about it, you know, what's really amazing about that change for those who haven't experienced it now looking back almost a decade and a half what would you say i think uh, i cannot compare at all so <laughs> <laughs> i think it was no plan first of all it was no plan it that's been uh, life for me so it has happened and, and that's it. it it has not been something that say uh, i was thinking okay i, I want to stop i want to make uh, wines I think if you have the passion for wines, that's really very a wonderful job. It's a wonderful work. It's more than a work. It's a kind of life. It's a lifestyle. So you live in the nature. You follow the the seasons. You work with the soil. You work with a natural product. You are able to express yourself or your vision or the vision in this case of the family as well that I've shared from the very beginning in a product that in the end transmits sensations, uh, emotion. And this, you are able then to communicate to people from all around the world that really are looking for for something in which as well they enjoy. This is the nice thing. Obviously, I have to say as well that it's harder than many people uh, think. It's hard work. You are, there are many risks. You depend on the weather. You depend on many things. It's not mathematical uh, sector it's not a mathematical a product that you, uh, a plus b is equal c or whatever no this is something so it's harder than many people think but i think as well that sometimes when you have the passion for something one thing is having that passion another thing is working in it we are happy to work in something that it's, it's our passion, but not for everyone necessarily 
working because when you are inside, you see other things. When you just enjoy one thing, you only see the nice things about it. When you work in it, you have to manage with many of the variables that as a wine lover, you don't see. You deal with that and, and you are glad and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that if you really have that passion and if you, you consider that there are much more sacrifices that many people maybe may, may have. It has not been my case because, again, I didn't program. So I just went into it. But for some people that want to program it, as well, it's different, I think. Uh, there are some people that want to make wine and one thing is having a winery. Another thing is working in a winery. So working in a winery, working in the vineyard. Uh, in my case, I'm not going so often to the vineyards because it's my sister-in-law that, that follows them. Is different than just having a winery and making wine. So the first thing is, okay, do you want to have a winery? Do you want to have your wines with your label? Or do you want to be a winemaker? These are two things. And being a winemaker means a lot of sacrifices. Not, not. Having a, wine, a winery maybe is economical investment. It's an investment, financial investment. Making wines, it's changing your life. Alex Sanchez likes to check in with uh, Barolo Wines at every stage of their life, and it's worked out for him that he's been able to do so in his own life. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Alex Sanchez of Brovia in Piemonte in Italy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, all drink to that pod.com. That's I L L drink to that pod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode was made possible by Vinitaly, the world's largest wine fair, held each year in Verona, Italy.